0: You know, if you get one thing out of this message today, I guess my hope would be, and I didn't really give this to the team um, in my notes or anything like this, but in Proverbs 21, so that it won't be showing on the screen, but Proverbs 21, verse 1. I would hope and pray that every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ in these political times would just live in this incredible peace, not anxious, not having to be belligerent and angry, but would live in this piece of this verse. The king's heart, which means the presidents, the congress, and everybody else, is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. That we would just understand, as Proverbs 21.1 says, we know there is someone on the throne, and because that, we rejoice. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we just dive into this whole topic of what it means for you to give us a government and for us to understand politics and for us to understand how do we live as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, citizens of whatever nation this follower of Jesus Christ may be a part of, that you, Lord Jesus, would reign in our hearts and through us people would see that we know there is a King above all kings. And we give you thanks for that, Lord Jesus. Now speak, I pray, through these words and your word in Christ's name. Amen. On March 9th, go back there in a message which I titled The Brilliance of Christ. As I was concluding the message, I asked a simple question, which was how do we live in this highly politicized world which we find ourselves in? How do we live in this very politically active world Environment which we'll be soon even more so entering into. What does it look like? What do we do? How do we do that? And at that point in the message, I, I ended up having like three pages more, and I just because of where we're at, I just stopped. And as I was praying about it, I sensed the Lord saying, "This is the time to do this. Kind of come back to this, and 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 let's just take a, a few weeks and get into this and understand." What we believe God's word has to say about one, how we are to be citizens and yet followers of Jesus Christ citizens in this realm and followers of Christ. So we were studying Matthew and it was Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22. And those words begin with then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words and they sent disciples to him. Now, catch this along with the Herodians. So the Pharisees are joining forces with the Herodians. Two groups that would just never go together on either end of the political spectrum. It would be like Barack Obama sending Nancy Pelosi and Mitt Romney sending Michelle Bachman. That's supposed to be a little laugh there. But anyway, um, (laughs) oh, there it is. Okay, I, I heard it in my head, but anyway. Seldom would anyone really think of them coming together on much of anything, but in this case these two divergent groups come together around this person, Jesus, because Jesus was threatening all their power and the systems that they stood for. And so Jesus stuns them and they come before him. The Pharisees and Herodians come with one single question and the question they thought would certainly trap him and show his true colors. In verse 17 of 22, they say, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, brilliant as he is, answers them and surprises them. And the scripture says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. By the image that is stamped on this, you follow this and give to Caesar. And by the image that's stamped on your heart, you give your whole heart to God. Fulfill your responsibilities, in a sense, to both realms. And they walked away stunned. They just didn't get it. I don't think a lot of believers and followers of Christ even get that to this day. There are two realms, there are two kingdoms, there are two governments that every person who claims to follow Jesus Christ live under and they acknowledge. And if they understand, and as you do the hard work of understanding and really commit your mind to understanding the Word of God, He's given us a mind to really apply ourselves. It is essential that you understand these two kingdoms and how you respond to them. The late Chuck Colson wrote a book that had a powerful influence upon me. Back in 1987, he was struggling at that time. He knew he was supposed to write something on this. He had been you know, the hatchet man for Nixon and went to prison. And he was all up to his ears in politics. And then God got a hold of his life. And he wrote a book called Kingdoms in Conflict. And he, at that time, was leaving something he was so... Involved in and moving into something that God was teaching him about what it meant to be a follower of Christ And he realized how important it was for believers and for himself as he was wrestling with it to understand the tension of these two kingdoms How do I follow Jesus as a good citizen? How does God government and politics intersect and converge? What's my response? And it's essential that we as Christ followers understand these two realms In Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, just hours before Jesus was to be crucified, as he was standing on trial, standing before one of the leading political figures of Palestine, a Roman. Jesus is actually thrown before Pilate, this Roman political figure, by the religious political figures of his day, the leaders of his day, of, of the Jewish faith. They throw him in front of another leader. And they accused Jesus of this. Listen to this. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. That's an outright lie from what we just read. And claims to be Christ the king, which was true. The Gospel of John continues this conversation and points out that Pilate brought Jesus inside the palace to speak with him privately. And he said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, is that your idea or did others talk to you about me? Did they feed you this line? And Pilate's a bit perturbed by this response. And he says, do you think I'm a Jew? It's your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus makes this all important clarification. Here's his response to this. He looks at him and he goes, my kingdom is not of this world. We're talking about kingships here. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have fought to prevent the arrest But now this kingdom that I'm a part of is really from another place. That's his response. So you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right. This is why I was born and came into the world. I like what Chuck Colson has to say around this response. And honestly, we need deep thinkers like Chuck Colson and the Ravi Zacharias, the C.S. Lewis's of our world. We need in this generation, and my prayer would be, there it might be even some young people who might go, I want to be one of these deep thinkers. I want to understand these things. Chuck Colson... As he um, shares, he says, while Jesus did not come to establish a political kingdom as he's standing before Pilate, the announcement of the kingdom that Jesus had come to establish had profound consequences for the political order that Pilate was talking about. And when Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth, Pilate may have breathed in a sense of sigh of relief. Well, don't have to worry about this. He should have reconsidered. Which is more threatening to a ruler, an external foe with a mighty but visible army? or an eternal king who rules the very souls of men and women. The latter, says Chuck Colson, all who rules the person who rules the very souls can command the will and affections, demand absolute obedience, impart unlimited power to his subjects, radically change their values in life. His followers fear no earthly power, and his kingdom they know has no end. And in the face of such a potentate, Any mere political leader must shudder. And Pilate, instead of going, if he knew who was standing before him and what he was bringing to his followers, us should have been most fearful. See, followers of Jesus who truly get this and I think understand the difference between these two kingdoms should be the most feared because they understand that people and their hearts are far more important than the influence of policy and laws. We usually live on such a, a, a different plane. Hearts given an absolute obedience, sacrificially loving and serving are far more dangerous force than those who seek to conform through their power and external control the lives of people. Seriously, when you think about it, what brought down the Iron Curtain? It wasn't weapons or threat of force. And some will make their arguments that it was the potential threat of force, but that had been there for years. What brought down the Iron Curtain were the hearts filled with truth and godly ideas that overwhelmed all government policy? The Lech, and many others stood up. What brought about the racial changes in our country? It wasn't force, it wasn't external power, but rather hearts filled with the dream that one day all men would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And those kind of ideas and those kind of truths began to just fill the hearts of people and changes began to occur. What radically changes a nation is not laws and external force, but people radically transformed from within. People praying on their knees to God in humility. As the prophet said, if my people who are called by, name, by my name would humble themselves, and if they would only make a new law, and if they would only put a new policy in place. It doesn't say that, does it? If my people would humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. So what are these two kingdoms? I hope we're kind of at a point where we're going, what are these two things you're talking about? How does this work? I think what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world, and what Paul seemed to indicate when he wrote to a group of believers in Philippi, it was a whole, it was a new, you need to realize the the, the letter to the Philippians was written to a, Group of people who were not Romans who had just been given Roman citizenship as a city. They were so proud of it. They were a Roman colony and they had privileges and rights that they didn't have before that many people didn't have. And so Paul is writing to him and he says, you know, it's a big deal. You became citizens of Rome. I like my Roman citizenship. It's been useful at times. But he says to them these words in, in verses 17 and 20. Join with others, he says, in following my example, and take note of those who live according to this pattern, which is this kingdom we gave you. And then he says, some will live by their appetites and their minds are on the earth, but our citizenship, our citizenship is in what? Heaven. Basically, live with your mind and values guided by this other kingdom, this other government, which you are a part of, which you are truly, mostly citizen of. The writer of Hebrews Stresses the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. By faith in God, you live for a heavenly city. He says the people of faith admitted that they were aliens and strangers on this earth. You may be a citizen, but you're really not any more than an alien and stranger here. He says people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. A heavenly kingdom. And then Jesus would stand up and pray. And he said to all of us, I want to teach you a prayer. And the prayer is really simple. It is one that calls upon this other kingdom. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. Just as it's like being done right now in heaven. So what are these two kingdoms? I just want to share with you in these moments, and it's going to be kind of teaching, so stay with me. I don't have all these, you know, my, my daughter often, when she listens, she goes, I like it when you share more illustrations. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you to put kind of the thinking caps on because I really want you to think deeply about what it means to be in these two kingdoms, okay? Are we okay with that? Are you awake? Okay. Here's what God's word, I believe, indicates. There is first a, differ, a, a, a great difference in confidence. These two kingdoms differ in confidence. It's a matter of what you put your trust in or better, who you put your trust in. There's a contrast of what I call confidence between these two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, earthly governments, trust the power of the sword, while the kingdom of God puts their trust and full confidence in the power of Of the cross. Catch it, the power of the cross. The world's government exercises power over and through coercion and force, while the kingdom of God exercises power under through love and service. Earthly governments see everything in terms of getting the the right earthly person in power, and heavenly government lives knowing who really is in power all the time anyway and says as Proverbs 21 says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he has this ability to direct things wherever he pleases. You know Jesus never put his confidence in political system because he knew that this system would never fulfill his father's um, primary objective. And and I have to say even is, is is wonderful and I love our country, our constitution, our government system. I think it's is probably the highest of, you know, throughout the years that God has allowed governments to you know grow and develop. But even this governmental system will never carry out the Father's objective. Jesus put His entire confidence in His Father and His kingdom, which Jesus makes available to all people. And this was the big aha when Jesus announced the kingdom of God is here. As He went around, He said it's available to the heart. And here are the people that were most interested in it. They were the most disenfranchised from the religious political system of the day. In fact, he caught the attention of the people who wanted to change the political system, the zealots, and he began to talk about this message of, of being poor and humble and hungering and thirsting and being marginalized and broken. And he said, this kingdom, this reign, this, this, this rule of God is available for you. Put your trust fully there. They differ in purpose. So not do they only differ in confidence, what you put your trust in, but they differ in their purpose, or if you want to put it this way, their aim. The Apostle Paul understood this clearly in Romans chapter 13, verses 1-5. through 5. Paul asked this question, do you want to be free from the fear of those in authority? Basically, um, he says, then do what is right, but if you do what is wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. Another way to say this is that when you're racing down the road and you know you're going over the speed limit, do you want to drive feeling fearful, or would you like to go the speed limit? Because if you don't go the speed limit and the police guy's standing there, he has the what? the sword, the power, the force to make it hurt in your wallet. That's how the government works. The government is constantly working this way in a very good way. It was given by God. It was given by God to put laws and enforce laws and to put those things together to curb people's bad behavior. It was put in place... So that this lower nature that, that we live by until we have been changed according to the word of God, it doesn't happen through improvement. It talks about a radical repentance where your heart is transformed and when your heart is transformed, now you live by a different law. But think about it. When you go to a zoo, why do they put zoo animals that are dangerous in, what do they put them usually in? Cages. They're just bars, they're laws to enforce so that animal will not go after you. And sometimes people take very dangerous animals and they they raise them as pets and also at some point along the line, what happens? Their real nature comes out. God in His wisdom and His glory put government in place to help protect and curb the kind of behavior that we see even in Aurora, Colorado. It's doing all that it can but it can't do enough. And that's the role of government. The kingdom of the world was designed by God for this purpose, using force and coercion to conform behavior. But the government that God brings to this world that we are most actively pursuing is the one that transforms the heart. My kingdom is not of the world, says Jesus and that's exactly what he meant. I, I could have called down angels, a cloud of angels, but I came to reveal the heart of God through the cross, through sacrifice, love, and kindness. And Paul says in Philippians 2.5 this way, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but God made himself, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself, even to death, even a criminal's death on the cross. And here's here's what happens in the kingdom of God. Jesus gave up his heavenly rights in order to free us from our sin-filled, self-protective ways. Jesus put aside self-interest. The kingdom of this world is just the opposite. It's rooted in preserving and protecting self-interest, one's own will. Everyone lobbying for for their rights, while the kingdom of Jesus is established and is centered exclusively on carrying out someone else's will, God's will. Even if it requires sacrificing one's own self-interest and rights, Jesus said many different times, "You want to experience my kingdom, you have to die to yourself." And this, this commandment is so important; it's repeated in Matthew sixteen twenty-five, in Mark eight thirty-five, in Luke seventeen thirty-three, and in John twelve twenty-five. Paul would also say at one point his life ambition was to follow the ambition of his Savior Jesus should be the ambition of all of us. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life, I live in the body. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a difference in aim. One is grabbing and and seeking the rights, and the other is saying, where I need to, I will give up my rights in order that you might experience God's love and power. They, They differ in scope. The kingdom of this world is intrinsically set on advancing one's own people group. Nation or ethnicity, ideologies or political agendas. Their scope is different. That is why you will find a perpetual conflict in this world. that's why Jesus, when we're looking at these passages of the second coming of Christ in Matthew 24, He basically says, government's set up to curb the bad behavior of people, but when nations have bad behavior towards one another, Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you're not really alarmed by this, because this is the very nature of the way things should happen. So if the kingdom of the world, think about it for a second, is tribal or national. And it's really easy for us, even as believers, to become so nationally oriented. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a gift of God. It's something that we should treasure. It's something that we should hold on to. We should also be aware of other people's nationalities and, and, and some of their traditions. But it's, if the kingdom of this world is tribal or national, the kingdom of God is intrinsically universal. The scope is for all people. The scope is not... A people group or an ideology that binds one together, but it is our sin in need of God that binds us together. So that's what I like to do every once in a while. I, go, you know, I like to just say, look around at the person next to you, and, and here's what it's not, it's not. by how they're dressed. It's not by the car that they bring in. It's not by how well it looks because we look at people and think their life is all together. You know what brings us together is we all are. We're like a big, you know, one of these like anonymous groups. Anybody with me on this? It is our sin. It is the fact that we know that we have failed the perfect law and holiness of God and we can't measure up. And that all of us stand before this cross with, with, with equal footing. And it binds not just you and me, it binds every person who is willing to admit this kingdom and all these people intrinsically. You see the difference of scope? The government you're truly under is one that is, is bringing in all people on the basis of the fact that they know they need God. It's centered on the fact that all of us stand equally before this God at the foot of His cross in need of His saving power, and it's centered on simply loving God in the same way God has loved us. In God's kingdom, there is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, Republican or Democrat, Builder or Boomer or Buster or Gen X or Millennial or whatever little group you may be a part of. That should bring you joy. I should look across here and you should be smiling. Because we are a family that is greater than the families of this earth. And its scope is vastly different. They differ in battles. Have you thought of this? The way that we fight is really different. The kingdom of the world has earthly enemies and fights earthly battles where the kingdom of God has no earthly enemies. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces underlying the kingdoms of this world. Paul made this exceedingly clear when he at one point said, I just want you to pray and I'm going to give you some advice. He said, I want you every day to put on the full armor of God. So you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then he makes this little statement for our struggle, our battle. The kingdom of God battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Folks, that is what our fight is against. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is when Elisha's servant awakens early and finds the city of It's It's surrounded by an army of horses and chariots. And so to get this really correctly in that day, just think of horses and chariots, Today, that would be if you woke up in your home and around your home were a bunch of tanks and artillery. That, that's what horses, that, that was a big battle weapon in that day. And so he wakes up, he sees the city, this little town, Dathan, surrounded by this army. And he runs to Elisha and he says, the servant says, oh, oh, my Lord, my master, what shall we do? They were coming to take Elisha. They were, they knew that Elisha was a troublemaker because Elisha would hear from the Lord. He would tell the king and every time he would tell the king what was going on in there, they thought they had to be a spy. So they finally said, let's just get rid of Elisha. So they're sat, they're around him and he's saying, Lord, what shall we do? And the prophet answers calmly, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are, are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha goes into his little prayer closet and he says, oh, Lord, would you just open the eyes of this guy so we might see? He's scared to death. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And here's something most people don't. You've heard the story. Some of you have. But you don't understand how the story ends. This is what's so critically important about what Jesus is teaching us through through the Word, through the Old Testament, what we read in this part of the Bible. Elisha asked God in prayer to strike the entire army with blindness. And so the whole army is struck with blindness. Elisha goes down there, meets with the commander and says, let me lead you to where you need to go. They are led right into the capital city of Samaria, surrounded now by the army of God. I mean, actual literal people. Of that northern kingdom are around them, and the king is there, and he got the army there, and the king is saying to Elisha, "Should I just, should I get rid of them all now? Kill them all?" And Elisha goes, "No way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to prepare a great feast for them. I want you to feed them and care for them. I want you to show them kindness, because the word of God always tells us that His kingdom, one of the weapons is kindness. Kindness brings about repentance, and so He He employs kindness." And here's how the Bible story ends. So the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. It softened and changed their hearts. Our battle is not against people. Our weapons are not of the world. It is not sword or the force of our will or some kind of powering over others. Laws and policies are all good things, and we'll talk more about that next week. But if we don't think deeply on this and get this deep within our hearts, it is the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love and truth that we come uh, with from those who oppose us with great humility. And in that humility, as we in kindness approach people, our whole hope and desire is not to pass a law or policy, but is to see a heart changed. That's what it means to be a part of this kingdom. Our whole hope and everything about it is that we don't have to get riled up in arguments. We don't have to become belligerent. We don't have to become angry. We don't have to come around and speak evil of other people, even if we don't like anything about them. Because we have a God that we put our confidence in. Who is in control of all this? And they differ in response. I touched on this in that last story, but it's significant. The way Jesus shifted the world was not through some political force or some moral majority or some interest group to be reckoned with, or he didn't have some strong, wealthy, influential lobby around the Roman government because what he was about was transforming lives. And hearts through the grace of God. And the kingdom of this world is a tit-for-tat system. Do you think about it for a second? The response is tit-for-tat. The, the law's model is well known in the Old Testament. I bet you, yeah, you could just say it if I started. An eye and a tooth for a tooth. Which is really interesting because... It was never meant by God as a way to get revenge. It was not, I can get you back now and take your eye. The idea by God even giving the law was to restrict the kind of ruthless revenge that when a person's eye was taken, you would go back in revenge and take out two eyes. The whole purpose of God's laws, when He puts them together out of love. It's always for the good of the other person. And he, he wants us not to live in this revengeful, angry, bitter spirit. And so He goes, I'm going to put a law in place that maybe will at least curb this so that you will see your own sin and turn to Me. And so He says, you who got a couple teeth knocked out, I'm telling you, just one, you a know, couple teeth. One tooth for a tooth. Not the whole mouth. In the kingdom's way is the law. In the kingdom of God, the response of our hearts is to give grace. It's to love like our Savior. We carry a cross, not the sword. It's not tit for tat. We do not return evil for evil or violence for violence. We do not speak negatively of someone because someone else speaks negatively of someone who like. We don't do that. Paul writes to those in Rome, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. He's writing to people in Rome and probably around a time when there was Great persecution because of what was happening with the Christian faith. And he doesn't say, start a political uprising. He doesn't go into a whole bunch. He says, live your life the way that Jesus did. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You know, strike him with blindness and then leave him. If he is thirsty, he's basically, can I get you something to drink? In doing this, you will be giving them a gift. Turn the cheek. Give them your shirt. Go an extra mile. Let your generosity and kindness surprise them like mine did you. Let your kindness render them defenseless. In the way of Jesus, totally different response than the way of the world. We are ruled not by laws, but by one law, a law, which is called love, which comes from our heart in response to him. This is the kingdom of God. It looks and acts like Jesus Christ. It looks and acts like the cross. It looks and acts like the greatest two commandments, which is our vision statement, loving God and loving others. It consists of people from every tribe and nation graciously embracing others. It consists of people sacrificing themselves in service to others. It consists of people powering under rather than powering over even when you suffer like Jesus for doing so. It consists of people dying to themselves like their Savior who died himself in a garden and then died for us on a cross for all people. It consists of submitting to God's rule and doing His will even if it means breaking the rules and traditions of men. In this light, it's obvious why Jesus said to Pilate, you don't understand. You are so caught up in your personal government in this earthly kingdom that you can't see the opportunity right before you. My kingdom is not of this world, Pilate. It's not a kingdom governed by external laws, but a kingdom governed by the one law from within the heart that has been transformed by the heart of God. So I say this knowing these differences, I ask you just a few questions. What kingdom are you promoting? What is your primary citizenship? To what government system do you find yourself most closely tied to? Are you fighting a battle against people? Or do you know who your real enemy is? Whose interests are you battling for? Conforming behavior or transforming hearts? What do you believe will change the world? The power of the cross? Or the force of some laws through man's will? And I'm not downplaying laws. Hear me there. I'm just saying we need to keep this deeply deeply ingrained within all that we do. Once again, I'm going to read Charles Coulson. I like what he says. This is why the kingdom of God has such an astonishing effect upon the most powerful human empires in every age. It is not a blueprint for some new social order, nor does it merely set the forces of radical cultural change in motion. Rather, God's kingdom promises radical changes in human personalities. And this is the crucial point. While human politics is based on the premise that society must be changed in order to change people, I mean, Coulson, he did it all. He writes, in the politics of the kingdom, it is people who must be changed in order to change society. Through men and women who recognize its authority and live by its ethical standards, the kingdom of God invades the streams of history. It breaks the vicious and otherwise irreversible cycles of violence, injustice, and self-interest. And in this way, the kingdom of God equips its citizens, as Augustine said, to be the best citizens in the kingdom of man. And Chuck Colson didn't go back into politics. He went back into transforming hearts of the most destitute people imprisoned. All around our country, and his ministry has touched all kinds of people throughout the world. In the nineteenth century England, there was a man who dared, against great personal and political odds, to represent the standards of the kingdom of God for the good of his nation and for, for the welfare of all kinds of people throughout history now. There was a man who actually captained a ship and his heart was torn, his sin was exposed, he cried for God's grace and John Newton on this ship. I I was going to read to you some of the stuff. It's just horrendous what he was doing. And his heart was so broken that the kingdom of God flooded upon him and he began to experience this incredible, amazing grace that even though he was a sinner who was so lawless and so hurting and destroying people that this new law began to pour into his heart, this law of love, and he, he wrote and penned this incredible song that we sing. And this one life that was changed by the kingdom of God touched another life of a man named William Wilberforce who was sitting in his own office, who was reading pamphlets and saw what was happening to the slaves, and he couldn't do anything but begin to respond to God. I've been reading this book, Bad Religion. He gets to the very end of the whole thing and he says, you know what, if people would just do what God's called them to do in their daily life and live transformed lives, we would see our society changed. So, as we move into this season, I just want, I think this is so important. I say this so from my heart that the backdrop of what we move into is that we recognize that there is a king whose heart is in the hand of the Lord and who can be turned and twisted any way God wants to, like a watercourse. And that's the God we serve. We're going to stand and we're going to sing together Amazing Grace. And as you do this, I just ask that you really just from your heart just say, God, I'm just bringing myself before you and asking, you know, your your place doesn't have to be a, a Newton or a Wilberforce. It just means where you work and where you live, you're going to begin to start living out the kingdom of God. The best thing you could do, some of you husbands, is to start to serve and sacrifice and go power under in that sense in the way that you lift up your wife or your kids you where you work. some of the best things you could do is quit some of the conversation that is so berating as you talk about politics and begin to start living out a new character that just says I'm you know that's an office I don't understand, I don't maybe agree that but I'm going to be respectful. We're going to talk about that next week. What does it mean to be a respectful good citizen? But let's just take a moment and come before God and just say amazing grace, you would change my heart. Let's worship God together with our hearts. Let's pray in sin.